Sexual harassment was completely legal. Pregnancy discrimination was legal. Women were expected to do things way outside of what you might consider a normal job description. We held these bad boss contests where the first winner was a boss who had asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his pants while he was wearing them. So it, it was really, it was dire out there. And when we started speaking up, everyone was so shocked. It was like the wallpaper had come alive. Welcome to the Labor Solidarity Podcast, which is an Empathy Media Lab production highlighting the work of organizers, labor journalists, and labor leaders. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, and we are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ellen Casty, who's the author of Working 9 to 5, a women's movement, a labor union, and the iconic movie, published by Chicago Review Press. Ellen was a founder of the 9 to 5 Working Women's Organization in 1973. She's the co-author of two other books for Working Women, and she's been a columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News, a speechwriter in the Clinton administration, and a contributor to numerous publications. She lives in New York City. Ellen, thank you so much for your time. Great to be here. So you do talk a bit in the prologue about why you wanted to write this book, but could you inform the audience about why you wanted to write this book? Yeah, I wanted to write a book, a, the kind of book that I was hungry for when I was starting out as an organizer. When I was in my 20s, I, you know, the whole 9 to 5 movement began in 1973. I was 23 years old and a bunch of women office workers from Boston sat around talking about our jobs. And it wasn't long before our organization took off. And as it did, I was... I. I needed something to sustain me. And, you know, how did people do this? How did people organize for social change and keep themselves going and, and get through the times of difficulty and doubt and, and exhaustion? So there wasn't a whole lot out there, actually. And I wanted to tell this story because I feel like there's a new surge of activism on the way, labor activism. And I was not somebody who necessarily thought of myself as a born organizer, as a you know born extrovert. And yet I found a place in a very important movement that made a lot of change. And I think that movements need to make room for all different kinds of people. And I wanted to tell my personal story really textured, like, what did this actually feel like to somebody who was like kind of shy and a little nervous about going to a lunch with a prospective member? And what if we ran out of things to say? And what should I eat? And, you know, what should I wear? And all this. And so my book is very intimate and it really talks mm -hmm. about day by day, what does it feel like to be doing this? And it's, it's so it sort of humanizes what I hope people will be inspired to do increasingly as the, this period goes forward. It's a very intimate narrative that you share from everything about what you're going through and, and through the years as well and, and your friendships and relationships. And it opens up in 1970s Boston and uh, people forget. And my mom always reminded me about how she could never get another job. She only could be secretary, even when she was doing sales better than the men in a record company she was working at in Capitol Records. They always said, well, you can't do that because they're going to hit on you or something like that. And just she's like, well, they are already hitting on me type thing. People forget just how different the jobscape was at this time. And so could you help just provide a scene setter? You're coming out of college and uh, 
you're you're an educated lady and your opportunities are not always available so i just to share with the audience that may not be familiar with this era yeah well in the early 70s the women were flooding into the workplace by the millions now especially white women women of color had maybe always been in the workplace and so it wasn't as as big a change for them but the economy was at a point a real tipping point in 1973 where all of a sudden, it wasn't enough to have just one income in your family. You had to have everybody working. So women were coming in, and the clerical workforce was composed of a very, very interesting mix. Some of the women in that in those jobs uh, had grown up in factory communities in the Boston area, had always expected maybe either not to work at all or to work in a factory, and a, an office job seemed like a step up. It was it was great. You got to dress up. You worked with people who were wearing suits. You had your own desk. It was a nice, clean place. But what was shocking was the pay, which was less than for factory work. And the other part of the workforce was people with a college degree, like myself, who had maybe expected to go into a professional job. You know, if you're getting a job in downtown Boston, maybe it's going to be in sales or editorial or whatever. And instead, we were all sitting next to each other and we were considered 10 typing fingers and that's it. And so we shared a lot of concerns, even though we came from different class backgrounds. And that was a, a really potent combination. Well, to oh, yeah. go on yeah. to more of what was going on in the 1970s, sexual harassment was completely legal. Pregnancy discrimination was legal. There were help-wanted male and help-wanted female ads in the newspapers. And women were expected to, I mean, there weren't very many job descriptions in the clerical workforce, but women were expected to do things way outside of what you might consider a normal job description. We held these bad boss contests where the first winner was a boss who had asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his pants while he was wearing them. So it, it was really, it was dire out there. And when we started speaking up, everyone was so shocked. It was like the wallpaper had come alive. You know, what? Women aren't happy just like being there in the typing pool. People want to rise up. Whoever knew that kind of thing? So, you know, women were the vast majority of the clerical workforce. It was referred to as the pink collar ghetto. And we were really, it was very hard to get a job above, to rise up in clerical work. One woman said, clerical work is great training for more clerical work, especially if you're good at it, because they can't afford to get rid of you. So even talking about your background, you do go just briefly into the fact that your grandfather was involved with organizing and you were even organizing in junior high. Could you talk about just this background as well? Yeah, my grandfather was an, a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe, from Lithuania. When he came to the American shores, came into New York City, he used to stand in the the square in, in New York and listen to the garment workers who were standing on a soapbox and orating about bread and roses. And I was very, very touched by this. There, these were basically teenagers, these women. They were making just dirt poor pay. And they organized into a huge, they organized an enormous strike, 1909, the uprising of the 20,000. And they made big changes in their own working conditions and also helped to transform the labor movement from what had been somewhat sleepy to something that was really dynamic. So I was very, very affected by these stories. And when I got to college, I ended up 
studying the Women's Trade Union League of the turn of the 20th century, which like nine to five after it, used sort of outside the workplace tactics, community organizing tactics to bring the issues of garment women into the public eye. And that really helped to move the movement forward. You made reference to what I did in, in junior high and high school. Those were the days of air raid shelter drills when all of a sudden you'd be sitting at your desks and a siren would sound and it was a practice for what would happen if there was a nuclear attack. And what you were supposed to do was either go under your desk and cover your head or go out in the hall and face your locker and put your hands over your head. Well, a group of us thought this was uh, pretty minimal for protecting yourself from a, a nuclear attack. So we had these armbands that said the only shelter is peace. And when the siren sounded, we would whip these things out of our notebooks and put them on our, our arms and use that as a way to, to protest this kind of ridiculous and militaristic Cold War practice. I was also involved in the, the civil rights movement because my parents took me to civil rights marches. My parents were active in fighting housing discrimination in our largely white town in New York. And so, and then I was involved somewhat in the anti-war movement and the student movement as well. But I didn't think of myself as sort of a natural born organizer. And that's something that I try to convey in the book. And could you talk a bit about your relationship? You're you're at Harvard at that time, and and or you're you're working in a clerical position, and you meet Karen Nussbaum, and then you get the opportunity to do a training in Chicago as well. And you have this great, great just best friendship dialogue that that you and Karen kind of go through, and it's it's really beautiful portrait of really kind of supporting and pushing each other. But this opportunity to go sh to Chicago is because you're kind of the the student, like you like being a student, you like the learning, and you go to Chicago, and you're you're a high achieving student, and then you get there and you have some challenges as well. Yes, so the my our little group of ten sent me to the Midwest Academy. It was the very first session of the Midwest Academy, a summer session where you were supposed to learn how to vie for power. I barely knew what that meant. So I get to the, to the classroom there in Chicago. I've got my notebook open and I'm just like scribbling madly everything they write down. And it's all brand new to me. So it turns out that if you're going on a, a lunch meeting with somebody who might join your organization, you have to have an agenda. You have to have a goal and you don't just sit there and chit chat about, you know, uh, the weather or how even about how people like their jobs or don't like their jobs. That's only part of it. And I so I learned and I had to learn from the bottom up. I was I was really, to my surprise, really not good at this. I had to learn how to speak up in a meeting. And, you know, my heart would be pounding. And I know that a lot of people's hearts are pounding when it's, let's all go around and introduce ourselves. And a lot of people get really nervous about things like that, things you, that other people think are like, what's the big deal? But, you know, our movement, as I said, has to make space for people who get nervous in those situations. And I was one of them. But by the end of that summer, I, I was full of resolve. And I came back to Boston and I, and this was a very important moment because we had been a cozy little group sitting around sharing our stories and we had various ideas, but it was pretty vague. But I came back armed with 
an agenda. Here's what we're going to do first. We're going to find an office. We're going to pay me $50 a week as a staff person. We're not going to call a meeting until we really have a plan. And then we started, we just step by step, really started a different kind of organizing where it wasn't a question of sitting around consciousness raising. It was a question of, okay, what's our action program? What do we want people to do? And what are we going to try to win first? Yeah. And, and really just putting it into that format of power and, and how you're trying to improve people's lives. Like the, uh, and, and like the criticism of the rock pile theory of organizing is, is mentioned as well in, in the book. And it's about power. And, and so often the, I've seen in my generation, I can see it in future generations that this idea of holding power, a lot of people rebel against it. They think like, once you have power, it's going to weaken you or make you corrupt or something like that. And it, it actually inverts the whole point of organizing and mobilizing is to seize power. And you, you go through these different steps of, of as you're confronting the power system and trying to actually through the, the numbers of the, the folks that you're, you're organizing. So, so what, could you talk about some of the first actions that you were doing within Boston at this time? Well, we held our first meeting and we planned out every single second of it. It, including, we, I had learned at the Midwest Academy that you don't set up as many chairs as you think you'll need, because when people see you setting up more chairs, they understand that, wow, more people have come than they thought would come. And so we, our first meeting was, you know, exceeded our expectations. It was like 125, 150 people. And there we announced two things. We were going to hand out a survey all over Boston, asking people to tell us about their jobs. And we were going to present those survey results to the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce. And we set up a meeting with some poor soul at the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce and demanded that the Chamber of Commerce should host a hearing for women office workers about our situation where we would present testimony about what the problems were. And so 50 of us came to this, this meeting with this hapless guy from the Chamber of Commerce, and he listened to us and he says, well, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean there are problems? There are problems of pay and respect. And what are you talking about? Bring me some statistics. So we went back to the federal building, into the bowels of the federal building and started going through all these big fat books. And it was not at all hard to find that Boston had the highest cost of living in the country, but we were among the lowest paid office workers in the country. We were the lowest paid northern city office workers. There were very few men in clerical work. Those few men that were there were making more than we were. There were very few people of color in clerical work. And so we, armed with these statistics, we went back to them and they said, well, thank you very much, but actually these are, these are matters intimate matters that really should be dealt with between an individual office worker and her individual boss. So goodbye. And we never heard from them again. We never were able to engage with them again. And we had to find other ways of drawing the employer into the arena. And the way to do that was to not Clear. It was not the same as in community organizing, where there are these public entities that have to meet with you, and there are all these networks in the community, like the church and the neighborhood association. Way in office work, there was like nothing like that. There was no history of collective action in the downtown Boston clerical workforce. And when something went wrong, people, or when someone, when you were unhappy, 
you tended to think, well, it must be my fault. I'm not dressed for success. I should take another class. I should like be more assertive. And it it took a long time for people to understand that, in fact, what really worked, this is a systemic problem. It's not just my problem. It's our problem. And we need to link arms to address that problem. Another problem in clerical work was that the workplaces are very authoritarian. So if you're sitting in the middle of a typing pool, you were not allowed to just get up and wander over to somebody else's desk or cubicle. The supervisors could see everything that was happening and they were suspicious. And the office buildings themselves were located often in these private plazas. So there'd be a huge skyscraper surrounded by this big plaza that you weren't allowed to step foot on if you were handing out a leaflet. So we had to stand near the curb and scurry from place to place as people were making their way into the, into the building. And then once people went through those revolving doors, often there was a supervisor stationed there who would just rip the newsletter right out of their hand, confiscate it. That doesn't belong here. You can't bring that in here. Patently illegal, but that's what happened. So we were up against a lot and we had to really go step by step to try to listen really hard and figure out what it was that people might be willing to do. They were not willing to like form a little group and go storm into their boss's office, mostly. There are a couple of people who would do that, but not very many. So how are we going to bring people's voices out and make them heard? And that was our, that was our challenge. And also the, the idea of that you, you mentioned at the beginning that people often blame themselves like this is yeah i need to do better myself instead of the systemic discrimination that's going on and it's when other people hear other people's voices going through the same different types of oppression and discrimination then that's when you can really form that solidarity as well and i i found it very interesting as well as when you went to the unions at that time and they were a little bit dumbfounded about trying to organize clerical workers and, and women. Can you talk about that story as well, about that missed opportunity from that union, but the opportunity for nine to five? Yeah. So right from the start, we understood that in in order to really consolidate power, we a union had to be at least one of the options that we were considering. And we we didn't know how to go about it. People would say, oh, well, you know, just Form a union, have a union drive. How do you do that? We didn't know. So we went around and we talked to the union officials in the Boston area. And they were, I would say, at least as confused as we were about the whole thing. They they scratched their heads like, what, what is this? What are, who are these women? What are they talking about? And they often said really clueless or offensive things. One, one guy said, you know, that's a great idea, organizing office workers. And if I had a girl in here to do my typing, I'd have time to go out there and, and join you and do that with you. Well, that was not, <laughs> did not please us. And, you know, they told us, well, women can't be organized. Women don't want to be organized. George Meany, who was the head of the AFL-CIO then, was famously quoted saying that, what about unorganized people? How many are there? What percentage? I don't know. And I don't care. What I care about is the organized person, the organized fellow, as he put it, that's my focus. And it was, and it should have been, you know, that that's one of the big jobs of a union is to take care of the, the people in the union already. But we were talking about something else. We were talking about uh, expanding the labor movement and bringing in this huge untapped 
part of the workforce that just like the garment workers at the turn of the 20th century, was a whole new opportunity for the labor movement. And eventually, after a few years, we were able to make an affiliation with the Service Employees International Union. And they they were quite forward-looking. They took a chance on us. They gave us our own charter. Eventually, we had a nationwide charter. We were allowed to choose wherever we wanted to go and organize and who we were going to hire as organizers and what kind of contracts and so on. And we formed what we called District 925. And the confusion was intentional between 9 to 5, our non-union wing, and 925, our union sector. And we sent organizers all over the country. And I, our, I would say that our organizing has a, a special 9 to 5 flavor. We, and, and this was partly because we were brand new and we had to. We paid very close attention to every person. We developed leadership. We didn't expect people to come forward. We went to them. We were careful to organize in a multiracial way. So if there was a multiracial workforce, we had people of color as organizers and leaders and brought those voices out. We had white people paired with organizers of color so that we we brought people together. It was very exciting. We Everyone learned so much and gained so much from working together. And as the 1980s got underway, we, like the rest of the labor movement, encountered the, just this ferocious pushback from employers. And that was really the the decade when employers really made clear that they were done with unions and it was not going to be smooth sailing for any union. The number of unfair labor practices filed at the National Labor Relations Board soared. The number of discrimination complaints filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission soared. The backlog was, you know, several years. And the the wage gap between men and women had been narrowing during the 70s. And once Ronald Reagan came in and the employers really put their back up, that progress stalled. So it's now the wage gap is something like 81 or 79% between women and men. When we got started, it was like 59 cents to the dollar. So a lot of progress was made, but then it really slowed down in the 80s. So one thing was, despite the fact that, you know, we, we organized uh, thousands of women into the labor movement, brought in new voices, people who would not have found their way to the labor movement otherwise. And we helped to seed a whole new generation of female leadership in unions that is going strong today with the, Liz Schuler as the head of the AFL-CIO and many of the big unions headed by women. And that's something I'm really proud of. And you also were able to really rock the cultural zeitgeist with the movie Nine to Five. And I believe part of it was sparked through Karen's relationship with Jane Fonda at that time. And anyone who hasn't seen that movie should see that movie. Most people have heard the song, at least, I would hope. But could you talk about how that came about? I love the the idea where the screenwriter is trying to get examples from women of their experiences. And there, there's some humorous scenes in the book as well. Yeah. So Jane Fonda knew Karen Nussbaum, who was one of our founding group from the anti-war movement. And Karen had been keeping Jane up to date on 
the boss who required his trousers to be sewn up while he was wearing them and so on. And so, and she was very interested. So she came to us near the end of the seventies and said she wanted to make a movie about the concerns of office workers. And we were thrilled. So she brought her team to meet with our members and everybody's sitting around. It was kind of awkward, kind of stiff. And then one member of the team asked this question that we had never thought to ask in all our recruitment lunches, which was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? And there was a moment of stunned silence. And then the room just exploded because it turned out everybody had. And one woman talked about wanting to grind up her boss in a coffee grinder and serve him a cup of coffee made from his own bones. And another woman said she'd fantasized about swiveling her boss around in a swivel chair and swiveling him right out the window. And these fantasies went right into the script. And the movie was a huge hit. You know, it took a while to convince the the studio locals that there would be an audience for this. Women had never been portrayed, women office workers, as the main characters on the big screen. But Karen wrote a, a memo for Jane to take to the, to the studio saying, talk to these women and they will listen. They will come. They will respond. And that turned about, out to be so true. It was one of the highest grossing box office hits ever. To this day, it's still right up there in the top 20. And the the atmosphere in the theaters was just electric. There's one scene where Jane Fonda is, is new on the job, and she's ushered into a room with a huge photocopier and told, okay, do this job. So she's like a little wary of the machine. And sure enough, something, she it starts beeping and the papers are coming out of different orifices and they're flying onto the floor and she's scrambling to pick them up and her lips starts to tremble. And at this point, women would stand up in the audience and yell, push the stop button. <laughs> so the movie and the song, Dolly Parton's toe tapping song, uh, really, really caught hold. And while our movement had inspired the movie, the movie then really propelled our movement forward. And after that movie came out, uh, it was sort of like the whole debate had shifted. And instead of having to convince people, yes, there is discrimination. No, women don't just feel happy with how their bosses are treating them. Yes, women office workers deserve respect and often know more than their bosses do and so on. All that was out there now. And then the question became, okay, now what do we do? And so we started our union. And then, you know, with the, the Patco firings and Ronald Reagan and the employers pushback, it became very difficult to move forward. But, you know, a lot of things have changed. Sexual harassment is not legal anymore. Pregnancy discrimination is not legal. We don't have help-wanted male and help-wanted female ads in the papers. And managerial jobs have opened up for women with college degrees, although the, the career ladders that we wanted so that you could rise up from the lowest positions up the ladder, that is still remains to be won. But uh, as we know, it can be harder to be a worker in today's economy than it was 50 years ago. People are working two or three jobs to make ends meet. Fewer people have pensions and paid vacations and regular schedules. And the rise of computerized monitoring, you know, second by second surveillance has made a lot of people's work lives really miserable. But we're seeing this really encouraging surge of organizing among retail workers and restaurant workers and warehouse workers and 
grad students. It's, it's everywhere. And, you know, a recent poll, I'm sure you know, showed that support for unions, public support is higher than it's been in two generations. It's 71% now, and that's higher than, than in the 1960s, since the 60s. So I have hope. I think we've, we're, we're on a good trajectory here. And, you know, you never win it all. And there's an old labor song that says every generation's got to win it again. And that's true. But I think I'm, I'm excited about people, you know, learning from history, learning from nine to five's history, learning from my personal story, but then going on to forge their own path the way we did. We, we sought out advice from older people, people who've been through it before. But then when it really came down to it, we really had to just follow our noses and go where the wind would take us and, and just stay focused. And I think that's what people are going to have to do now. I do want to point out some of the major national policies that you supported, your group supported and helped win. And can you talk about the 1978 Pregnancy Discrimination Act? Because you've already mentioned it a few times that there there was pregnancy discrimination, but and there still is today, but there was much more back then. And could you talk talk about how pregnancy was seen in the workplace? Well, I guess there a couple of things. One thing was that people were often just forced to retire when they got pregnant. One of the things I've been doing as I go around and talk about my book is I've been holding a dignity at work contest where people who come to my book readings are encouraged to write down on a little index card what's like the most outrageous thing that ever happened to you on the job. And the winner at my most recent book reading was somebody who had been working for a school system and had been forced to retire when she was five months pregnant because she was pregnant in a school system because children shouldn't, you know, see that kind of thing. Or I don't know what the reasoning was, but, you know, people were not allowed to be teachers and pregnant. And then the other thing was that pregnancy was excluded from a lot of employers' disability policies, and that was legal. So if a guy broke his leg on a ski trip, that was covered. He would get, you know, short-term disability while he recovered. But a woman who was pregnant, who, you know, gave birth or had the prenatal visits or whatever, that wasn't covered. And that was perfectly okay. Well, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978 outlawed all that. And so now pregnant people have to be treated just like any other employee. So if you've got a disability, short-time disability for a ski trip or a hernia operation, it's got to cover pregnancy as well. And some other legislation mentioned as well as the Civil Rights Act of 1991, the Family Medical Leave Act, and the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act as well. And that's just the start of getting people mm-hmm. organized and getting people empowered in their workplace, democratizing their workplace, and uh, demanding justice and freedom. I do want to talk a little bit about where you see labor writing, labor books, publishing as a labor writer, someone who focuses as labor. Oftentimes, I've I've worked with a few publishers helping to promote some of their work as well, like Tim Sheard, Hardball Press. And I'm I'm just wondering how your experience has been as a labor writer. When I worked as a a columnist at the Philadelphia Daily News, my editor referred to me as a foreign correspondent. <laughs> so I was reporting from the front lines of, of workplaces. <laughs> that was so 
alien to what was in the newspapers at the time, you know, work from the worker's point of view. That was my beat. And it wasn't anybody else's beat. You know, there was the business page where people like me tended not to even read, you know, women office workers were not reading the business page. That was for managers. And what was there for working people? Not much. I do feel that it, my eyes have been opened since writing this book because the labor podcasts are everywhere. And it's so exciting. I didn't know anything about them. And so an outlet like yours is a great resource for people, at, for both for writers reaching readers and also readers finding out about books. So that's been cool. I don't know. I've had a pretty good, I, I feel like there's there's a lot of interest in, and the fact that there's so much action going on out there. You know, on Labor Day, there's like tons of articles about people organizing and people that you didn't think of as organizing. It's, I think of it as like a sleeping giant. And back at the beginning of the 70s, we were the sleeping giant. Women office workers who, you know, secretaries, receptionists, who even thought about them as workers? No one. Now it's like, hmm, Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, they're problems are out there for everyone to see. And it's it's great. Well, I'm going to put your website in the show notes as well. You have a lot of different books and that you've also published outside of this one. And you also have tips for writers that offers advice about writing and being a better writer. And we, we talked a little bit about how the gig economy is coming in and algorithmic management and some of these changes that are happening just as the nine to five movement was able to bring in new strategies and new organizing tactics. And I'm, I really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. And in closing, I, I wanna read a passage that you wrote. Today, it was no longer mill workers, but office workers who held the low paid, low status jobs at the center of our changing economy. Maybe now it was our turn to add a link to the chain of social change that stretched back through the generations. And maybe I could be a part of it, forging that link. So, Ellen Casty, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Evan. Really great talking with you. Ooh.